Hi, my name is Nick Winnenberg with On Brand Podcast Studio. In this episode of Children of the Perfect Storm, we discuss some sensitive topics. These do include child abuse, sexual abuse, and past trauma. If you are currently struggling with mental health concerns, please reach out to a mental health care provider or 988. If you have similar stories to what Evangeline Duvall digs into, please reach out to Evangeline Duvall. She would love to speak with you. Her information is in the podcast description. Evangeline Duvall, and this is Children of the Perfect Storm. My name is Nick Winnenberg. I am co-producing this episode of Children of the Perfect Storm. I am Laura Calhoun, and I am future co-host of Children of the Perfect Storm. Yay, Laura! Yay, Laura. Thanks. Hey, really, thanks for coming and joining us today. I really appreciate it. But we're going to spend part of this um, episode getting to know Laura. Because she'll be with us going forward and all of our other guests. So, Laura, tell us why, who you are. Well, Van, thanks for volunteering me for this job. <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't fully aware this is what this was going to end up being for me. And I am very excited about being here. Well, I'm glad. I am. I'm very excited about what we're going to talk about. Because the plight of these kids that we've both been working with in the trenches for so very long is so very important. And not enough people know about it. Right. So this, um, the podcast is all about awareness, but it's also, um, almost a call to action in a lot of ways. So as we have talked about before, we're not only going to be interviewing guests about their experiences and some of them are going to be really tough to listen to, but also with the, we want to leave you with hope because we know that we can make a difference. Um, of the plight of the children that are in the perfect storm, for sure. But in order to get there, we have to understand what it looks like. And that's what our guests like Laura 
and others um, are going to provide for us. So I guess let's get going. Sure. Laura, so run me through your experience. What's your experience working with these kids? So I got involved about 11 years ago with an organization called CASA for Claremont Kids. CASAs are all around the country in 49 states, I believe now, serving thousands and thousands of kids who are court involved. And by court involved, we mean they are in the foster care system. So we don't see kids that are in the kinship care system, which is when family is caring for children. We see kids that are that have some kind of court involvement through no fault of their own. And we become their advocates in the system. And so Kind of the lens I get from that is I get to see the mental health system. I get to see the educational system. I get to see the court system. We get to see juvenile detention. We get to see group homes. Uh, all of those things are what are wrapping these kids up, a whole generation of these kids up. And so that's what, how I got started. And then Van also volunteered me for the Varner Foundation for Children and Families. It's funny how you phrase that, volunteered you. <laughs> yes. It's, if you, Nick, if you Nick has a little bit of a... A little bit of experience on my volunteering. That's the way I do that. If you stand too close to Van, your hand will raise (laughs) for a job of some sort that you had no idea you were excited about doing. And so um, I got involved with the Varner Foundation as well. And we stand in financial resource gaps primarily for families that are trying to care for kids who are not safe at home. So this is what I've been involved in for the past, you know, almost 11 years now. And um, I see a need to get the word out to a much broader community than what we've been able to do so far. And so Children of the Perfect Storm kind of was born of that as Van and I discussed at length many, many, many hours. What can we do? What can other people do? Because people really want to help. Well, and and in complete transparency, uh, Laura and I are very good good friends, and it actually was her idea for the collaboration piece of this, where I was running all over the place with my hair on fire, so to speak, saying, we have to do something, we have to do something, how should we attack this? And Laura knows a lot more of the different agencies within our the Cincinnati, greater Cincinnati area that I could tap into. And... Um, and be able to get guests from and to really see what what has been going on. So this was, the collaboration was Laura's idea, and then I branded it and named it and kind of put other things together. So this has been a true partnership um, in programming, the two of us together. So let's discover a little more about Laura. So what's your why? My why is very interesting. I am a descendant of a traffic child, and I've known that since I was a very young girl. My grandfather was orphaned and essentially sold to uh, what was called a nice man down in Florida when his caregivers died in childbirth. And so it's always stuck with me for, you know, for most of my life now that how lucky am I that this man somehow gritted this out back in the early 1900s and found a way to survive and thrive. And he did it through just good old fashioned good people in his life around him and and a lot of self-reliance. And looking at his situation and then looking at what kids today are going through, not a lot has changed, sadly. I was going to say, so this isn't a new thing that we're dealing with right now with these kids. Would you say that it's 
um, deeper and broader if I was to define those terms. In other words, do we have more kids, do you think, that are in that situation? And is it deeper because it's become more severe? Well, I think the pandemic had a profound effect mm -hmm. on the kids that are currently living this, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of my grandfather's generation, I don't think we'll ever know. And we'll never know because these kids just died. Most of them, you know, they, they were just turned out on their own and it was depression era and people were not making it anyway because it was so difficult to just be alive if you weren't somebody of some kind of, you know, already some kind of resource, right? So it's it's really hard to say comparing that time to this time, but I think what we do know is that even in this time with agencies and lots of helpers and lots of great things going on, um, kids are still experiencing very much the same kind of of angst and you know they're they're scared and they don't know what's going to happen next and none of that has changed. Kids are still going hungry. Kids are still being beaten. Kids are still being sold. Abandoned. It's 2023 and children are being <clears throat> sold at an extraordinarily high rate. Yeah. So, and I, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the other podcast, but we are the third state in the nation, Ohio, where you and I are for trafficking children for sex per, um, percentage wise. And so I think that there's been an uptick on that, uh, maybe because the border's open and because of all the drugs that are coming up, but that's definitely making a huge impact on these kids and our agencies. And there's not enough agencies and there's not enough workers in these agencies to really uh, wrap their arms around it and hold tight. And that's one of the things that we're trying to bring a light to. Yeah, right? I, I actually ran into this. Uh, a couple summers ago, had a had a teen in Claremont County who had run away, and run away many many times. Ended up downtown. Ended up with uh, with a trafficker, and we actually because there's a task force here in this greater Cincinnati area that collaborates and cooperates. We were able to contact the right people and pull this kid literally out of the shower of the pimp's house, getting ready to be taken out for the evening and sold. And so that was a great win for the kids, right? right? But the damage that was done prior to us pulling this girl out of this situation, it, it took a couple years just to really help heal and bring and, her back. And um, so Laura has, uh, we've reached out collectively to people that know that very well. For instance, we have invited someone on that actually is a 911 operator. Uh, and we're going to see what, you know, speak with her and see what that looks like. Also, someone work, that works in the trafficking uh, on the on the law enforcement side and really give us an idea of what that looks like as well. Um, and uh, just really lots of different things we're going to talk about in this. Yeah, I think, too, we want to trace that journey of sure. healing, right? Because the trauma of of being in foster care and then a runaway and then picked up and trafficked and told you're loved while you do the thing that you're doing for your trafficker is awful. What's the journey of healing? I mean, a lot of these kids, this is the only, this is the only time that their needs have been met, their housing, their shelter, their food, some nice new clothes. So a pimp doesn't sound so bad. 
And right. that's a scary thought. So what's the healing journey? Because victims think they're in love with their traffickers sometimes. Right. Well, so, and I think, sorry, Nick. No, I was going to say, to go back a little bit to focus on CASA. What is CASA from, from the square roots up? Yeah, so CASA provides advocates for children who are in the foster care system and that are court involved. And we see the kids uh, every month, sometimes more often. We are checking in with their counselor. We're checking in with their parents because we want their parents to rehabilitate their, their parenting skills. If they're separated from their kids, we want them to go home into a healthy, safe environment. That's always our goal. Unfortunately, in about two-thirds of the cases, that will not happen. And so when that doesn't happen, then we're also there to try to understand what does this child want? What does this child need? What is in the best interest of this child? And sometimes the child will want something that's maybe not in their best interest, and we have to sort through that. And sometimes that means you have to bring in an attorney for the child to advocate for what the child wants. Sometimes it's in alignment with what we think is in their best interest. But it's giving them a voice because they're the only one in the system who doesn't have a voice if we're not there. Right. Um, the parents have attorneys. The state has attorneys. The, the county who's removed the child has an attorney. Mm -hmm. Child has nobody. So this guardian ad litem program and, and CASA programs, mm -hmm. they're here to give that voice to that child. And I think it, I think it's really important to mention that healing, because you keep bringing that up, which is our ultimate goal. Um, when we talk about healing, it's going to look like a different journey for not for every single child. Every single child has gone through trauma that, even though it may be the same as a sibling their brain is going to deal with it completely different. There's a whole neurological part of the path to train, to healing with these children that gets overlooked because then you have to meet each child exactly where they are. And we have no systems in place right now that will do that. So we know how to fix this, and I'll keep going back to that. We just don't have the resources and the people to be able to and I'm not, I shouldn't use the word fix, and I apologize for that. It's heal, for sure, for these children to be healed. So at-risk children, the definition that we've come up with for the children of the perfect storm, at-risk means without intervention, a child will not have a, become a successful adult. Now, how do you define successful? I think it's the child that defines successful. What their what their um, what makes their heart sing. What what skills and abilities they have that makes them unique. We need them to have a chance to grow and discover and be supported with those pieces. But when you're wandering around having gone through an awful lot of trauma, that's almost impossible to get to without some without some aid, without some help. Mm -hmm. Can you run me through a real-world story of what you've seen recently? Something that's been closed, maybe, that's off the books or off the records? Well, and I think, you know, the healing journey starts with feeling safe, right? I mean, it's really important for a kid to feel safe. So there have been times where, you know, we've intervened for just the most basic safety item for a child. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's... Um, you know, in one case, it was a high chair for right. a little traumatized kid who had been around a lot of domestic violence. And the safe place in the house was the kitchen. And the safe place in the kitchen was the corner. And the corner is where the high chair was. Right. And so as this child progressed on to school, preschool, this 
this child really needed a place to feel safe. And just this one little thing of this high chair that the school couldn't provide, uh, we went to the Varner Foundation. CASA went to the Varner Foundation, filled out a grant request, and we got this high chair. And we really created a safe environment at school, which allowed this child to calm down and learn a little bit more and more readily available to accept the instruction. So that was a really simple thing and a great example of the kind of collaborations that, that we want to see in the perfect store. Right. And and just to piggyback on what um, Laura said, so the, the high chair that we got that was taken to school for this child in the classroom graduated to a youth seat and, you know, so it was one of these that you could constantly yeah. adjust it to, as the child grew. Well, last we heard, he's actually using it to sit at um, a lunch table with his friends. And this is really the first time he said friends in his whole life because he feels safe. Because safe also means hope, also means you can be yourself. Think about it. When you feel safe, you feel like you can, um, you don't have to hide anything. You can express yourself freely. And you, and so that is just brings you empowers you and for a child that's been through so much abuse that not being empowered it is huge um but yes we did the varner foundation was able to to buy that high chair but it also brings up the point where it didn't even cost two hundred dollars if i remember correctly right so the message here too is you may not be able to work with CASA and become a guardian ad litem or work with Nest Community Learning Center and go out and be tutoring with all the kids and bring what they need, but everybody can do something. And during these podcasts, it's very important for people to take away with, I can do something. It could be giving money to the Varner Foundation or to another organization to supply something like that. We also did that, the Varner Foundation, with with a car, especially made car seat for a child that needed one. So we're not talking about thousands and thousands of dollars to fix a problem. Mm -hmm. Every teeny little donation or every big donation makes a difference. Right. And what I really love is the chemistry and the collaboration between the organizations. Because what you're basically saying is like, alone, we can't do this. Alone, CASA is CASA, Nest is Nest. But when you start to create these deals and this chemistry, you're going to start to see a larger impact. You're absolutely right, Nick. And the other thing is, as a guest come on, we are having other guests come on, um, like with Beach Acres, with other places that we both, both those those organizations have collaborated with mm -hmm. to fill their needs and to help them with theirs and actually sit around and, and go, okay, so how, now that we have three of us in the room, how can we work this out? How can we help each other? So our hope is that down the line, we don't have three of us in the room. We have 20 of us in the room, 20 different organizations that everybody stays in their own lane with what they do, but we can enhance each other. Like the icing on top of all these little cupcakes. I know that sounds ridiculous, but that's what we want everybody to walk away saying, A, I'm not in this by myself anymore. Because you, you feel like you're going to beat your head against a brick wall because you're, it's, you're constantly fighting against the same thing. But together we're stronger and we're a stronger voice. And when you're a stronger voice, when, when Children of the Perfect Storm becomes a voice, that lends a voice to the voiceless, which are the children that we're working with. And they are no, we've nicknamed them in the invisible kids. They're no longer invisible if some, if they have a voice. And that's what we want to supply for them. And what you're what you're doing, what you're saying, it makes perfect sense. 
it hasn't been done before, no. which means there's barriers. What's some of those barriers you guys are running into? Well, some of the barriers are going to be developing trust between agencies because in the past, when you said collaboration, everybody gets kind of, they get territorial about their donors. And so, you know, you're in a nonprofit, you're in a small nonprofit. We, we live and breathe around here with a lot of grassroots nonprofit organizations. Just down the road, we have Give Like a Mother. You know, we've got Which Casa. Is great. We've right. got the Varner Foundation. Sweet we've cheeks. got Nest. Yeah, we've got so many wonderful organizations, but everybody's worked very, very hard to build a base of donors. And so the biggest fear when you talk about collaboration is, is somebody going to come and poach my support system? Because you live and die as a nonprofit. You live and die by your, or I wouldn't say die, you live and survive. That sounds very harsh, is not it? Live and, you, and survive through your donors and your volunteers. Mm -hmm. And unless you protect them and unless you um, make sure that they know how valuable they are to your organization, you as a nonprofit, it doesn't matter what your mission is, you're in trouble. So Laura is absolutely right. Everybody wants to keep their donor list under lock and key. And I'm sure I'll talk about everything you want, but don't ask me for my donor list mm -hmm. because they're worried. And so we need to come up with ways where we can have events and things like this that you can invite your own donors to to see what the collaboration is and then they can you can give to what you already support, knowing that it's part of a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Because I think donors really want to see the biggest bang for their donor dollar. And this collaboration will give them that in space. You're following an abundance mindset, right? You're going yes, into, yes, instead yes, of us yes. all competing against yes. each other, we're going to work together to get yes. more abundant resources yes. from the community. Yes. That's when we went those joint... We want those joint outcomes. We want to maximize those joint outcomes. And, and in the post-COVID world, in the nonprofit funding world... Uh, it's very hard to get funded. 50% of grassroots nonprofits are either gone or will be gone very mm -hmm. soon since then that's all fallout from the pandemic. And so the, and innovation, the economy too, the yeah. economy is so uncertain and people don't like to invest in things when they're uncertain about the economy. Mm -hmm. And right now we're stuck there. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's, that's gone against us as well. But the innovation on our, of our piece of it is Let's take a look at this and say, okay, there is a way to protect everybody's donor base. Mm -hmm. There is a way to come together through a well-crafted MOU system. There is a way to collaborate and trust and work together and maximize these outcomes. And you know what? Where this little guy down the road wasn't eligible for a grant by himself because he, he or she can't provide services at this level, three of us together can. Mm-hmm. Now we're in the game with the big guys, mm -hmm. and we can we can become viable and sustainable in this very very inhospitable post COVID funding world, mm -hmm. and so that's a big piece of what we want to do. And if anybody um, listening to this podcast wants to personally get involved, but they're not sure where to go or what to do, they're welcome to email us, and we can point them in the right direction and say, you know, ask a couple of questions. Well, what really makes you, you know, what kind of time do you have or what are you excited about? And normally people go, well, I want to feed kids or I want to, you know, do this or I want to do that or tell me how to become a CASA. That's I'm retiring next month. That sounds something, you know, good. So we can actually steer them to where they're going to be the happiest mm -hmm. because a volunteer will stay um, in your organization if they feel useful and it's something that really resonates with them. And that's why that piece is very important. So they can always reach out to us via email. 
I love it. Now it's kind of an open question to both of you guys. I know that you're taking over for co-host moving forward from here, so I'm very excited. Yes. Who are we most looking forward to talking to this year? I know we have a lot of really, really good people kind of on deck, but who do you think's next? Oh, our next guest is Scott O'Reilly, yes. Executive Director of the Little Fork Family Advocacy Centers, and also a former Claremont County Prosecutor and current Brown County Prosecutor. And he was actually, he's an award-winning prosecutor. He's done tremendous work with victims. Um, can't wait for him to come on and tell some of his great stories. Yeah. And he's had when I say great stories, I mean, we've had some good outcomes for people coming through terrible mm. things, but he's just such a good speaker and has he's, such a good catalog of information for listeners. And he's seen the worst of the worst. Yeah. But it, the fir within the first couple of sentences, if you were to be introduced with him, to him and start talking about this topic, he will talk to you about we need to get prevention going. We need we can't be running around, um, you know, management by crisis. Oh, now this has happened. So now we have to run behind and try and, you know, clean up in aisle seven. He's very much of what can we put in place that's going to minimize the horrible things that are happening to some of these kids. He doesn't have all the answers. None of us have all the answers, but that's his, oh, I don't want to speak for him, but that's it. That's it. That's what he feels very strongly about. Awesome. Yeah. And I think we're very aligned with yes. him on prevention, prevention, prevention. It's so hard to measure prevention. How do you measure what never happened? But um, it's so important because prevention, you know, is the best mitigator for, for a crisis. Sure. Unfortunately, because measuring it's so difficult, it's harder to get it funded. Mm -hmm. And so this will be part of the discussion as well as we go forward is how do we kind of shift the sands a little bit to bring prevention more to the forefront, even though we understand that response is just as important. We have to start working on the prevention side or all we will ever do is be responding. Right, And that's through re-education of a lot of the funders. A lot of, we have wonderful organizations in Cincinnati that for year, for decades have, you know, given to nonprofits. But the way they look at grants the way they check their boxes on what they need to the discussion around them hasn't changed. We're hoping that th one of the things through this is that they it will open the funders the funders eyes the found other foundations eyes saying oh maybe we need to revisit how we look at these requests funding requests. Mm. That way, all nonprofits will benefit. 